Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, joining me is someone that I, I haven't had on the show in quite some time. It's uh, it's my buddy Craig Hustins. Craig, what's going on, man? Oh, uh, nothing. I'm, I, you know, it's it's been too long, and I, I'm not sure. Is it my fault or yours? I, I, did I say something in the last one that really like rubbed you the wrong way? That's my only what I was saying. Not at all, man. I think it was we had a little bit of a conflict there with this being like a Sportsnet show now, and you with the stuff you're doing with with ESPN and it's a affiliation with ESPN. But I mean, like, I was looking, and you were. You were, I think, one of my first guests. I think you were on like episode two or whatever, and we were previewing Connor McDavid's debut. And then I had you on like a year ago, and it's been it's been since then, pretty much. So uh, I'm pretty excited to have you back on. Was so? Did I say Connor was going to be a huge flop in the NHL, and that this kid was overrated coming in? You know what's crazy about Connor McDavid? I feel like he got so much hype, and I remember before he even played a game, there was like those headlines like, "Is he Connor McDavid better than Crosby?" Question mark. And it was like easy to easy to make. It was easy to make fun of people just getting carried away, and you know the the hype machine get out of, getting out of control. But we're in what he's played like sixty or seventy games so far, a year and a half in, and I honestly like he's just blown me away by how good he already is. Like I I was ready to believe that he'd be one of the best players right away just because of everything we heard about him, but. I don't know. Just I guess seeing is believing, and just amazing how uh, how good he is at pretty much everything at this point. Yeah, I don't think we could have overhyped him, and then the the and he's been hyped for years, so mm-hmm. it was no real surprise. And I think the interesting thing is maybe on some level we underhyped, and I know you've gotten into this, so I don't want to go down this path necessarily, but uh, underhyped Austin Matthews and, mm-hmm. and who I, I really believe there was a bigger gap between the two of them. Than there is, and I still think Connor McDavid's a better player, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's as big a gap as I initially thought. Yeah, it's a it's a discussion. I still think like just Connor McDavid's just I don't know, man. It's that that speed and 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 just everything. Like it's 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 crazy how he's been able to just master the five on five game already. Like we see with young players. I mean, even like a guy like Patrick Laine, for example, who is scoring a ton of goals and contributing offensively. Like he's had these rough patches in terms of the possession game and, and keeping the shot metrics mm-hmm. up, but McDavid just like flawlessly, I, I guess Matthews is a little bit like that too, in terms of just how many, how many shots he's generating and just the impact he's having on his entire team. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and to, to do it at center too, like that's, 
you know, like Lion A has been great, but uh, I mean, I, I, I put these other kids at another level just because they're doing it down the middle. And I was in Toronto when, um, I think it was Hall of Fame weekend when Mike Babcock said, you know, our hope is by December that Austin Matthews is an elite center in this National Hockey League. And, and he got there. And the beauty of it was, I think, you know, Austin alluded to it. Like he was asked about that comment a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I think we're there. Like he has so much confidence in his ability and it doesn't even come off as like bragging. Like he just, he has a lot of faith in, in his ability to produce. And I don't know how you, I can't imagine doing something at 18 years old at this high level and having so much faith in your ability. So it's pretty, it's been amazing. It's nuts, man. Well, okay. I think that's a good segue for us to talk about the least because, uh, it's pretty much the main reason I wanted to get you on. You wrote this thought provoking piece. I thought last week about how, you know, generally when we see young teams like this that are led by guys on um, just coming into the league where, you know, we preach patience and you've got to go through the growing pains before you're ready to make that next step and compete in the playoffs. But I think that the point you raise is, is a salient one, just that in today's NHL, it's, it's so huge to strike while the iron's hot, particularly taking advantage of having top contributors on entry level deals. I mean, three years from now, when all these guys are due for gigantic raises, like the financial landscape, and, and their ability to maintain depth on the margins is going to be severely compromised. So I guess why not just yeah. take advantage of it now while you can? Yeah, that's that's a little bit behind the thinking. I just think uh, you know, the conclusion that I came to and I wrote about was this this Maple Leafs team is, is unique from most of the other rebuilding teams where I, I do think there's a process mm-hmm. and you, you don't want to rush it and you have to gather as many good young players and it, you're going to go through... Uh, some ups and downs and that you know, get, get uh, upset in the playoffs and there's just kind of this long grind it takes to kind of get to the point where you're a Stanley Cup contender. I think they're unique and I lumped them together with the Crosby Penguins and the Taves and Kane Blackhawks and that I don't think it's going to be a long process. I, I, I think they're capable within you know, two years of, of making a Stanley Cup run and, and just like you know the, the um, Blackhawks won in 2010 and that was Taves I think it was his final year on his entry level deal. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, the I think Malkin was still on an entry level deal when the Penguins won in '09. And in the cap system, you have this really minuscule window to surround this elite young talent with free agents and veterans before you, you're suddenly paying these guys. And that was one of the mistakes I thought Edmonton did. Immediate, you know, they immediately gave those other guys big contracts, and it was this long term build. And it's like. If you really believe in your young players, you might as well surround them with high-end, expensive talent while they're on entry-level deals, and then worry about it later. And, and with the kind of Blackhawks, Brian Campbell, the example, the, the kind of the parallel you draw, where you bring in the guy, and then when you have to pay off some Matthews, Mitch Marner, then maybe you have to cut that guy loose. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, win as much as you can. Well, yeah, I mean, we're seeing sort of the the cautionary tale of how it can go wrong with, you know, a team like the Islanders or I guess even the the Tampa Bay Lightning to an extent. I mean, at least they they made a couple of long playoff runs, but it's one of those things where you can't just take it for granted that, you know, just because you have these young players that are still either in their prime or entering their prime that you're going to one day win it. Like a lot of things change in the NHL and you, you just never know whether it's injuries or whether just horrible luck or what have you, something can go horribly wrong that you didn't really expect and all of a sudden you kind of missed on your shots so i think that whenever you have this chance to to do something special like there's no real reason to wait i feel like just go for it now and and see what happens yeah and and i i do want to clarify um 
on some level because I, I'm not suggesting they sell and trade a bunch of first round picks right. for rentals at the right. deadline and bring in, you know, Jerome McGinley or whatever <laughs> guys that aren't going to be part of the process. But I do think uh, they should, and it's completely justified to trade draft picks or prospects to bring in a guy like Kevin Shattenkirk, who you can then resign and he can be your Brian Campbell. And, and like I, I keep drawing this parallel, this, this really was spurned by a conversation I had with John Torchetti, who's the uh, who was an assistant coach with Chicago when they won in 2010. And I, I grabbed him on the day he's now in Detroit, and they, they were playing the Leafs that night. And I just said, "Look, I'm starting to think these Leafs are like the Blackhawks and Penguins." I go, "Am I, you know, is this like crazy?" And he said, "Absolutely not." And then, but he stressed. He said, "Look, they may have their Kane and Taves, and they do have their Kane and Taves and Marner and Matthews, but." The Blackhawks don't win without Brian Campbell. They don't win without Marion Hossa. Um, what that you know that the Marion Hossa taught Patrick Kane how to play a two hundred foot game and defend a little bit more. It, it gave him that you know secondary scoring you need to win a Stanley Cup. He said Brian Campbell what he did completely sparked their transition game, gave the younger players the confidence to skate the puck out of trouble and and play with speed. And some of the things they weren't necessarily doing until Brian Campbell arrived. And so I, I, I do think that Toronto is in that spot now where you can add those those kind of big secondary pieces. Yeah, I mean, and also those Blackhawks teams, like I think the thing that made them special was just the legendary depth. I mean, even beyond guys like like Campbell and Hosa, just you go on down the list. Like, remember all the guys that they wound up having to just give away to the Thrashers, basically? Like, I mean, like the Bufflins and the Versteegs and Brower, and you go Patrick Sharp, you go on and on down the list. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to have the top guys, and they're obviously the ones that are going to sort of drive the drive the bus or, put, or, or, or really move the needle for you, but like it's... In the playoffs, especially, it's that those kind of depth guys stepping up out of nowhere that is is ultimately going to make or break your, your chances. Well, for sure, and and maybe some of those guys exist now. Even watching uh, the Maple Leafs, uh, not, you, you, they're getting contributions from all four lines. I mean, they don't have a third line with Bolin, Versteeg, and Ladd like the like the Blackhawks did, but um, they they I think they do have. I, I like their forward group. Mm-hmm. Like I I don't have a real big issue with. Uh, I don't even know if they need a Marion type player at this point it's obviously it's, it's their defense that you struggle with but going back to the Blackhawks I had a conversation with Joe Quenville this summer and he said um, we, we were talking about that 2010 team and he said you know if you ran the numbers on what the players in that Blackhawks were worth mm-hmm. kind of in their prime on all those teams they're off the charts yeah. and I ended up doing it I was working on a book with them and, and and I, I ended up adding up like if you what each of those guys was worth when they kind of finally got their payday, and it was it would have been the biggest payroll in the history of the league. Like there was no, it, it was it was just kind of this confluence of all these things happening in Chicago. And what makes the Blackhawks so impressive is that they. Yeah, obviously we've talked about this, but they dumped all those guys and then ran it back a couple years later. Yep. No, that's insane. It's, but uh, it just it just goes. You, you, it's going to go in phases. Like it's not a linear thing hmm. with the, with the Maple Leafs or some of these other rebuilds or even Edmonton. You could lump into this. Right. It's not just this slow progression. So maybe you make a push and then you got to tear down a little bit. Then you make another push and you got to tear down. But it's all built around trying to win with this great young core that I think is as is good as any. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's definitely fair. Um, you, so you mentioned Shattenkirk. I think it's a good segue for us to uh, talk a little bit of, about the Blues. Um, they made some noise today with uh, firing, yeah. firing Ken Hitchcock, and you wrote a uh, 
a piece about it. I feel like when I was reading it, kind of, especially in the first couple of paragraphs, it read more like a eulogy than anything else. You were like talking about him in the past tense. So it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a bit, yeah. You have to go read it again. <laughs> but <laughs> you're like, uh, yeah. yeah, no, but you made, you made, you made some interesting points about sort of, uh, you know, the shelf life of Ken Hitchcock and, and, and his career in, in that regard. And I, reading it remembered when I had Todd Warner on his podcast and, and I remember he was sitting right across from me in my living room and, and when I brought up Ken Hitchcock uh, he, he the face he made I, I don't think I'll ever forget it he kind of like he was taken aback I don't know if he was just a bit scarred by his uh, experience playing under Hitch in, in Philly for a brief time there or what but uh, it's interesting because I do think that from everything you've heard over the past handful of years it does seem like he he made some adjustments to just the way he interacted with his players. Like he was no, always known as this kind of hard ass that would always scream at his players and was just a nightmare to play for. And that's why we saw him, you know, his, his tenures generally end in, in pretty ugly manners in his various stops. But it felt like the past few years in St. Louis, he'd sort of made a concerted effort to just, I guess, let his players play a little bit more. I don't know. Is that fair? Or do you think that it, it kind of revert, reversed course towards the end there? No, what I was really trying to drive home in that in that that column, Ken Hitchcock was was to get to a to a point where you're a successful Ken Hitchcock team. It takes a few years, and it's really hard. But ultimately, what he's trying to do is is kind of drive home what he wants out of a team to the point where he can then turn it over to the players and he's not in their ear every year and he, or every single day. And he's not bugging them to do the block the shots and, and go to the net and win the battles in the corner every day. The ideal is that, you know, he, he kind of drives that home and maybe uh, to an extreme to the where it drives the players crazy, but they do understand that th- this is what it takes to win. And then what he wants to do ultimately is turn it over to the leadership group and, and we've had that conversation in the past, and he said, really, it got to that ideal moment where he had complete trust in the leaders, kind of back and forth, and they trusted him three times in his career, when, when they won the Stanley Cup in Dallas, when they went to the Eastern Conference Final the year before the lockout in Philadelphia, and he said they got to that point last year with the St. Louis Blues, where he had complete faith, where guys like David Backus and Troy Brower, they were running the room, and they were sending the message of what he wants so that he didn't have to be Ken Hitchcock and down, you know, uh, breathing down their necks every second. Um, and so then what happened was, obviously, Bacchus is gone, Brower is gone, Steve Ott's gone, and the guy that maybe was reinforcing the message. You're starting from scratch with a new captain, and now it's Petrangelo, some young stars, Jaden Schwartz and Robbie Fabry and Vladimir Tarasenko, um, and you're doing it with a one-year contract with the next coach in waiting. Uh, on the bench and you're asking them to do really hard things that they don't want to do. And I, I just think that was a recipe for failure. And it really seems obvious now kind of after the fact, you said, oh boy, this was never going to work. Um, it, but I, I just, you know, I think that's why it failed is, is you removed that leadership group that had taken years to kind of, to understand the message and then can, can convey it on their own. And you were starting, starting over on some level and you were doing it, knowing you weren't going to be there a long time if you can't Hitchcock and, and obviously fail. So, I mean, in hindsight now, they obviously, you know, they made that long playoff run last year, made it to the Western Conference Finals. And then in the summer, they kind of made a move that they were at least keeping an eye on the future when they basically just traded Brian Elliott away so they wouldn't lose him for nothing in the, in, in the expansion draft or in free agency. Is that like, should that have been a sign that they should have also just made the switch to Mike Yo at that point rather than trying to kind of half-ass it and 
do one more year with this group and with Hitchcock, or is that just sort of like revisionist history at this point? No, it, it, maybe it's unfair to Doug Armstrong, but I think that is the move. Like when you're when you're turning the page so dramatically from these veterans to this new group, you 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 are better off wiping the slate clean and saying, can can Hitchcock maximize this group? This we got as far as we were going to go, um, and now it's time to to start fresh because. But, like, I think at the same level, you know, Ken Hitchcock earned the opportunity to come back if he wanted to. Took him to the Western Conference Finals. So right. you can't, you're not going to fire your coach at that point. So it was such a tough spot because when I say all this about kind of the turnover and leadership, I say it in full support of what Doug Armstrong did. I, I, you know, I don't think that David Beckett's contract long term is going to be a good one for Boston. I don't think the Troy Brower contract is going to be a great one for Calgary long term. Uh, you know, Steve Otte, that's a, that's a roster stop for a young guy that you're bringing in. So if you look at each one of those decisions on an individual basis, you can completely support them, and they make sense. Um, but the kind of the sum of the decisions was what, what we saw happen in St. Louis. So um, maybe, the, you know, in retrospect, the right move was to, to completely turn the page, including the coach. But if Ken Hitchcock wanted to come back, he had earned that right. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you handle it. Right. Yeah, it's a tough situation. I mean, if you're running the Blues now, um, are you are you making any big moves? Like, are you, are you kind of expediting the process and trying to trade Shattenkirk for whatever you can get now? Or, I mean, it, it's tough because you look at the landscape and despite everything that's gone wrong and how horrible their goaltending's been, they're still holding on to a playoff spot. And, and I don't think that there's anyone, you know, in the Western Conference or especially in the Central Division that is, you know, so terrifying at this point that you wouldn't want to play them in the playoffs. Like, I think it's it's pretty wide open. So they're still technically in it. And and as we just talked about with the Leafs, where it's like, if you have a chance to, to make some noise, you, you kind of have to at least give yourself a chance to do so rather than just blowing it up. Like, I don't know. What, what, are, you, what are you doing in the next month or so if you're running the Blues? Yeah, I'm I'm selling, and because uh, I just think they're in a different, completely different part of their development from the Maple Leafs, mm-hmm. and and I think they're a little bit different than some of the teams in the West. Like I was before this all happened, I was going to make a, a kind of a, a pitch for the Sharks in the Wild to be a little bit more aggressive than we're hearing they are in terms because for the reasons that you said, the West is wide open this year. Mm-hmm. There's not a there's not a Blackhawks or Kings in the way, so that if you have a team that's that's playing well and into it. This may be the year for for a breakthrough. Um, it, almost the ideal, and I could, you know, it's it's never was going to happen. But what, if you're St. Louis, like if it would have been, if you could have brought back Backus and Brower and all those guys on a one more year deal, you know, and just said, look, we almost made it. Let's there's there's an opening in the West. Um, let's let's go for it and let's do it on a short term deal. I mean, players, you, it's not a realistic idea, but like that would have been the ideal because they could have pushed. But once you turn that page. Uh, you've got to almost just say, okay, this is a year in transition for the Blues. And that means also we have to trade Kevin Shattenkirk because you, you can't let those other guys walk and then you can't be in between. You have to make a call. And the call was that this is going to be a transition year by the moves they made in the summer. So with that in mind, I think you trade Kevin Shattenkirk. I think what this firing does now is it frees up the ability for Doug Armstrong to say, I don't need a player who can help me now. I, we're, we're completely transitioning, so I'm just going to try to get the biggest return possible for Kevin Shattenkirk, whether that be prospects, draft picks, or a guy that can play on the roster. Whereas, had they been world beaters this year, he would have had to have done a Kevin Shattenkirk trade that brought back a roster player that helps him now. And those are really hard to make at the deadline because if you're a good team trading for Kevin Shattenkirk, you're not trying to give up anything off your roster. 
so in some some level, this move and kind of declaring this a transition year frees him up to have even more flexibility with Shattenkirk. Yeah, yeah. The worst, I mean, the worst spot you can be in in the NHL these days is, is kind of in the in the just in the middle there, right? Where it's like you, you kind oh of need to God. decide where you want to go and then just just firmly do it and and, and see where where you, where you wind up because it's like if you're kind of like half asking it where you're like oh we're gonna keep these guys but we're not gonna do this and that it's like oh, all of a sudden you're just you have nothing to show for your efforts basically. Yeah, I know. And there's there's well, I mean, I'm living it in Detroit here. Uh, <laughs> you know, where, where there's fans that are so frustrated with the Red Wings trying to push for, you know, making, getting the last spot of the playoffs, keeping the streak alive. Um, you know, there's, I think there's, I know there's an appetite among the fan base here uh, um, to, to, to rebuild. And, and, but at the same time, you know, these teams, uh, when you, when you start going down the rebuilding path, it's easy for all of us to say on the outside, when you start stripping down, it's sometimes it becomes a spiral you never get out of. And, and, you know, I know that was, you know, we used to be critical of the Devils and Lou Lamarillo because he was kind of, he had that same mentality where he didn't want to lose, he didn't want to strip down, didn't want to rebuild, was trading for Corey Schneider when, you know, he had an aging roster. Um, and and then, you know, you bring in Ray Shiro, who is, you know, doing the proper thing, but, boy, you know, it's going to be a while for that team to get back. And some teams, Carolina has been rebuilding forever, Arizona, and this is, it becomes a long, arduous process. That you, know, you got to be careful what you ask for as a fan sometimes. Yeah, I mean, pretty much if you know, you you got to basically get a, a McDavid or a Matthews, or it makes it a lot easier. Otherwise, you're, it's going to be pretty tough to, to to turn it over to a new core. Well, that's the thing you got to you got to tear it down in the right years. Yeah, and then in those right years, you have to get lucky in the lottery. And and so I look at you know even Buffalo on some level really just you know did all, did the right thing, tore it down, and, and you know got a good player in Jack Eichel, and they've got some good pieces, but. I mean, I don't think, I think even Sabres fans would, would agree that the Leafs have sped past them. And, yep. and part of that is just doing the timing. Part of it's getting lucky in the lottery. Um, the Oilers, I mean, that was a disaster until they get McDavid. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's just not, a, it's not like a two year thing where you're like, Hey, we're going to rebuild and we're going to get a franchise sentiment and we're going to be back. It's, you need a lot to go right. Uh, one one final thing on Shattenkirk before we move on. I, I, yeah. I you know we've heard all these possible landing spots for him and and where he could go and, and where he's going to want to sign this summer. But I'm kind of a bit surprised that one angle I haven't really seen anyone discuss with this is like has anyone ever even broached the topic of potentially uh, signing Shattenkirk long long term and moving Petrangelo instead, or is that just like a complete non-starter? Uh, well, I mean, based on conversations I've had, the that hasn't been an option like there was I was talking to somebody there was kind of a rumor just on you know that the the Blues were going to make a push to sign him and, and so uh, you know another team had said they'd heard that and I checked into it and there, there had been zero conversation yeah. in the contract uh, when I checked in this was a few weeks ago so really I saw no appetite um, from the Blues perspective and, and really if you have to choose one I like them both but I'm, I'm you know if, if you're making me choose between Petrangelo who's already locked up under, I don't know, his contract offhand, but I, I have to assume it's going to be a better number than what Shattenkirk's going to get on the open market. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. So uh, Petrangelo's at $6.5 million yeah. through 1920. Like, that's a really nice number for for a guy that you can consider a franchise defenseman. Shattenkirk's going to get a monster deal. Do you, do you think he gets something? going to be higher than that. Do you think he gets something comparable to what Keith Yandel got last summer? Yeah, I think he yeah. gets a Yandel deal. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, and and because he, who else is like him? Uh, if he hits the market, 
yeah. like who's a free agent defenseman that you can get that does what he does and and you know and that's the other thing like we we um you know we're we're kind of treating Shattenkirk as as this great player and he's a good defenseman and I like him he can play on my team but he's not flawless and mm-hmm. I know there was some frustration on the Blues coaching staff at the time with the way he played and there was games in the playoffs where he really struggled last year um and it got overshadowed by the Blues success but you know he, he you know he he'll make some mistakes and he's such a he's that rare talent where he's providing all that offense and can spark a transition game he's that modern defenseman he's a right-handed shot so he it makes up for some of the flaws in his game but he's going to get he's going to get a deal that you know that's probably going to make it, it, it isn't going to be great down the road but yeah that's how that's what you got to do to get those players well the only reason i brought it up is because like just from a, a value-based perspective like i feel like if they made alex petrangelo available right now i, I can't even imagine what, what kind of return they'd get on that right like i feel like petrangelo is just so well regarded in the hockey community by by quote-unquote hockey people and and i don't think that the difference between him and shattenkirk is that different like compared to what you'd get if you traded one or the other at this point so i guess that's the only reason i brought it up yeah, so right. So you, you sit there like a best case scenario your return for Shattenkirk at this point, you you know, is kind of the traditional rental of a you know, an A prospect, a first round pick, maybe a roster player if you're really trying to hit a home run. Whereas Petrangelo, holy cow, you're right. Like I can't like when was a twenty seven year old number one defenseman available? I mean, if if Adam Larson gets you Taylor Hall, what does Petrangelo get? So yeah, I think that's in terms of just asset management. Um, the return you would get for Petrangelo would be so much higher, but then you got to sign Shattenkirk. That's true. And and you know you're tying up probably another two million a year mm-hmm. on the, the uh, in, in the cap hit for times eight. Then at that point, so whatever the number is, I haven't broken down Shattenkirk's numbers yet. But it's an interesting thought. But I, I just think it's so hard to get that top pair defenseman that once you do and you have them at a reasonable contract, you you keep them. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, so you mentioned the the return. Like I, I know you wrote recently about um, <clears throat> the trade deadline and sort of whether first rounders are going to be more available. And you know, I, I know it's yeah. it's generally considered to be perceived a pretty weak draft, relatively speaking, at least compared to the past couple of years. I, I think that. Do you think we will see more of more more back packages like that made? And and I think the other question is at the trade deadline. Do you think that we're going to see teams making moves, keeping a closer eye on on the expansion draft? Whether it's you know. I, I look at a team like the Flames, for example, and or even the Oilers, and they have spaces up front where they could conceivably take a useful forward that they can wind up protecting because of just how their roster is shaking out right now. Whereas some other teams might be desperate to trade guys for whatever they can, and at the you know scared that they might lose them for nothing instead. So, do you think we're going to see some of those kind of wonky trades that we otherwise wouldn't have seen in years past? Yeah, I've asked that question a lot of GMs because I yeah, I was convinced that there would be more deals just as teams try to line things up and, and you know, the kind of the, the sense I got from guys and, you know, this may change, but was that you, you just, you're worried about right now, if you're a contending team and like, let's say you're the Minnesota wild and you're concerned, you're going to lose a, a defenseman in the expansion draft, which yeah. as it's structured right now, they're going to a, a pretty good defenseman. Um, I don't think you're making a trade right now to dump one, to get something in return to, to prevent that because you're trying now you have this opening to possibly win a Stanley Cup or make a long playoff run I think you just deal with that in the offseason and I think we're going to see more more trades in the offseason as teams try to restructure I had another GM say 
if I'm worried about losing a guy, then maybe the move is to acquire more of that type of player so it doesn't hurt me as much. And, you know, so if you're worried about losing a defenseman, go add a defenseman so that when you lose them, it doesn't, it's, it's a little more painless. So right. I, I do think there'll be moves made, but I, I don't, I don't think the, I don't think that's going to happen till later. But to get back to your initial thought, for sure the consensus is that this draft is down to the past. Certainly at the top, there's that, there's not a Matthews or a McDavid, probably not even a, you know an Eichel or Line A. So guys I talked to said, sure we would trade our first round pick, but who's that? Who are we going to trade it to? Like who are the sellers? And that to me is our biggest issue right now with the market is we don't have any. You have Arizona and Colorado. Um, other than that, you don't have any sellers. So I, I think teams are definitely willing to move their first-round picks, but they're not willing to do it for, for nobody. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a good point. It doesn't really get brought up that often. Just, you know, the point system right now, just the way it, it's at with the loser point, like teams like the Canucks and even like an Islanders or, or who have you are like within striking distance of a playoff spot. So they're not necessarily the conventional sellers, whereas they might've been in years past. So it's like, uh, if you're a lot of these teams, you can kind of talk yourself into just either standing pat and not really doing anything and seeing where you, how the rest of the season shakes out. And that means that teams might be more apprehensive about making, making those types of deals. Yeah. Parody is going to kill the trade deadline. I'm afraid this year. And the, cause the difference is we, you don't have the team, the tanking teams. You just don't have, Teams that are that are saying we want we want the number one overall pick, so we're every single team, and whether they'll admit it now or not, went into the season trying to win, and and that, that wasn't always the case, and and so I, here we are a month away or whatever it is from the trade deadline, and there's still not. I'm looking at the East standings. There's still not a team you can say 100 percent they're going to declare themselves sellers, and and I you know I think ultimately teams like Detroit and Buffalo. Maybe New Jersey will, will end up doing the right thing, and kind of you have some some realists at GM in those spots, and and they'll do what they have to do. Like I know Tim Murray in Buffalo, like he's not going to do anything that subtracts from the long term success of the Sabers. Like if if they're out of it, then then you move, you know, a Kulikov or whatever. You you do what you have to do because he's still trying to to, to build a long term winner there. Um, the, the, the Detroit one's an interesting one just because of the playoff streak and I, I don't know how close they have to be to a playoff spot before Ken Holland says okay we're going to sell yeah yeah yeah, no, they should uh, They should definitely not be buyers that's for sure I think that would be pretty catastrophic <laughs> no. at this point well I, I think we're, because of all of this I think there's an opening if you're a GM there's an opening to declare early and say I'm a seller and it, right now, if you, if you only have Colorado and you only have Arizona as, as real bona fide sellers, then jump in now while there's, while it's a complete seller's market and, and, and say, you know what, we're, we're going to move early and, and maybe we move Thomas Vanek if you're the, the, you know, Detroit or one of these other teams and just say, this is the, the time is now because if you wait three weeks, it may, there may be more clarity and you may have, more competition on the seller's market. So I think there's an advantage to, to striking early in that front. Man, I, I was just thinking about how you said uh, every team was trying to win heading into the season. And then it's like, if that's the case, man, what do you, what do you, what do you make of this Colorado Avalanche season? That's like, it just, it's, it's, it's frightening. But don't you think like there was nobody in Colorado before this year saying, uh, this is the rebuilding year. Like that was, this is a team that you know, Landeskog and McKinnon and they, they thought they were on the rise, and and you know the whole Patrick Waugh thing threw him for a loop. But 
they certainly weren't trying to finish last. No, and, and, and well, that's the thing. Like the uh, those Sabers teams that were tanking for McDavid in particular were, were worse, but they were getting surprisingly good goaltending from guys like Michael Neuwirth, for example. Right, where it's like the, the goaltending is completely bottomed out for the Avalanche here, and they're horrible at every other position. So it's like it's just a recipe for them. Just I, mean, I think they're going to be one of the like least least successful teams in in recent history this year. I mean, they're on pace for just like I think like fifty points or something like that which just seems like somehow impossible to do in today's nhl yeah and that's what makes it so much more concerning if you're an avalanche fan because it was unintentional you know toronto if we go back and look i bet you if we really wanted to trace some of the moves they made in terms of calling up ahl goalies and players they had to work hard to get where they were at the bottom of the standings they land off the matthews and nobody's complaining and and you know but <laughs> like that's the thing with Colorado to me. Like Arizona's been bad this year, but like if Arizona really was, uh, and I and I think they wanted to see growth, so I, I think there's definitely disappointment in, in in their season, no doubt about it. But they could have kept Dylan Strong. Like they could have done a couple things if they really were trying to push this year to, to make this year a little bit more respectable. They they definitely had the bigger picture kind of as the focus, whereas Colorado, they were trying to win and had failed miserably. Yeah, uh, you're, you're pretty dialed in. Uh, what are you hearing about the uh, the Bruins and the and the Claude Julien front? Because it seems like I don't know. It's, it's died down a little bit here. I feel like last week I, I woke up every morning just checking my phone, waiting to see if something had broken overnight or early in the morning. Like, are they? Is it over now? Like, or, or is, no, is, is, is it's it? never over. <laughs> it's, it's like that, that's been going on since they won a Stanley Cup and they, they lost to Montreal in the first round in game was a game seven that. He was gone. Claude Julien was gone. And for whatever reason, you know, there's like, he just hasn't won everybody over in the organization. I don't know what else he has to do. And the only reason you're not hearing it is because they won three straight games. If they lose the next three, I promise you, it's going to be like, Oh, Claude Julien's on the hot seat again. And like, I was so happy to see Claude Julien stick up for himself the other day. I guess it was the other week now where he basically said, look, this, you know, there's some roster concerns here too. And, and, and as, as good of players as they do have, they don't have the depth that they used to have. And they're sitting in third place in the Atlantic. I think he's done a perfectly fine coaching job there. And, and anybody you replace um, Claude Julien with is going to be a downgrade at coach. But, I mean, if I'm him at some point, I'm just saying, look, just do it. Like, let me, let me go somewhere I want it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that Vegas job, for example. I mean, it, it's crazy to me just that... I, I, I get where, you know, when things become a bit stale and you want to make a change just for the sake of, of, of livening things up a bit, but it's like, you look at this roster, it's what, what is he, what is he supposed to do with it? I mean, their top line's amazing. Zidane Chara's still good, although he's not really what he used to be. And, and Rask is a perfectly fine goaltender, but like beyond that, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I think they're, they were a fringe playoff team to begin with and they're a fringe playoff team now. And I think that that's a perfectly reasonable spot for them to be based on the talent that Don Sweeney's given them to work with. Right. They are who we thought they were, yes, right? Like exactly. the, the Bruins are exactly where it's not like they're in last place or, or wherever. And, you know, they're, they're trying to do a hard thing where, you know, when you trade Lucic and you make some of these, the moves they've made where they were trying to add in young talent. Um, well, where they, the young talent they were adding isn't going to be ready for a year or two, you know, light of maybe like a, a McAvoy. So um, it, they're going to get that depth. My only concern is that. So I, you know, I, I do think they have some good young pieces coming in Boston, 
My concern is that you're losing some of the you're losing some prime years off of Bergeron, and you're losing the last couple of years of Chara. Yep. And in those, it's so hard to get centers like that and defensemen that you need to win a Stanley Cup. And now you, you, we're going to look back and let's say they miss the playoffs too. There's going to be this window of a few years where players with you know Hall of Famers where where the, those years are lost. And I yep. think that's going to be troubling if you're a Bruins fan. Yeah, that's yeah, a bummer. Um, okay, one final thing before I let you go. Um, we had the uh, the top 100 players of all time released a few days ago and, and, and celebrated. Um, I know everyone loves lists, and I get why the NHL did it for uh, for marketing and branding purposes and to get people talking. But uh, how what, what were your thoughts about the list, just if you're actually going to take it seriously and just look at it from a critical evaluation level? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I wasn't getting too worked up about it. My biggest my biggest issue is that they didn't rank them. Like I was like, what a, <laughs> they really sucked all the fun out of it when they, when they did it that way. I, you know, just from a modern player perspective, like I was, I was, you know, Duncan Keith was a little surprising to me, his inclusion over some other defensemen that are playing right now. And I, like, you know, I, I maybe would have put Chara in that spot. I thought, you know, I'm certainly in the camp that Joe Thornton had to be on that list. And I, and I don't know why he wasn't. But, you know, I know there's some people saying, you know, Pierre Pilat, and Like, I, I don't know. Like, I have no point of reference from guys that played in the 60s. So it's 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 a hard list to compile. And, and um, I, what I'm glad is, it just to me, it was just fun that it made this All-Star Weekend such a unique experience to have all of those guys around. So, like, aside from griping about the list, I'm glad they did it because it was so cool to, to, to have those guys around to watch the interaction with, you know, Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby and to, to see how they basically were awestruck, you know, watching these legends walk by. And it, like, Dimitri, it was crazy. You'd go, you get off the elevator at the hotel and there's Bobby Orr sitting there with a coffee and there's Nicholas Lidstrom, <laughs> you know, with his wife, going on a walk with his wife. And, and there, you know, there's all these, these legends just hanging around. Like it wasn't like they were sequestered somewhere and, it was just, it was like, uh, you know, Field of Dreams or something. It was, it was pretty wild. And, uh, you know, I'm glad they did that. Yeah. I mean, Nick Lundstrom's, uh looking pretty good these days. I feel like he would step into the lineup and be Detroit's second best defenseman right now. <laughs> he was second. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Mike, Mike, Green, Mike Green's still, Mike Green's still pretty good. I'll, I'll give him that. Mike Green's <laughs> Green having a good year. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, you know, Nick is, uh, he's a perfect human. He can, he could still play. He could play forever. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, all right, um, Craig, what are you? Uh, I don't want you to spoil anything necessarily, but what are you? What are you working on? What angles are you looking at to uh, to dive into next? Oh, um, nothing. Well, like we're just—it's trade deadline season, so mm-hmm. I'm. You know, we're going to dive in, you know, full bore into that. Now that the All Star Game has passed at ESPN.com and on ESPN Insider, and and you know, we get we get into it. I mean, this is such a fun time of year. Um, I'm really hoping there's. A few more sellers than there are now because it's going to make it one of those days where we're talking about the uh, twenty twenty eight Olympic team or whatever. If if they don't if they don't uh, make some trades, but I, you know that's that's where the focus is right now. It's, it's there's going to be so much speculation and rumors and and I you know I love that stuff. I think it's fun. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm going to file a, a customs correspondence question to you right now. I'm, I'm just I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm always I'm always just fascinated and just blown away by like how you're able to uh, to provide like kind of be critical of if something's not going well and you don't really pull any punches, but at the same time you seem to not offend anyone or burn any bridges. Like you still get all the money quotes. I just I don't know. I, I guess it's all that uh, 
all that training and expertise and years of the job because it's something I, I still personally know I struggle with quite a bit. It's like we're using the right words so you can still kind of keep the door open for conversations later, but not really kind of writing fluff pieces and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a, right, because you still have to call. These guys have to answer the phone, so you can't just crush people. Um, I, I, you know, and I, I just think if people think you're being fair mm-hmm. and you're not just taking cheap shots or low-hanging fruit or, or even personal shots, I think sometimes you see something go, wow, that kind of crossed the line. Right. Um, I, 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 like people understand if, if you're a coach and things aren't going well, there's going to be a critical analysis of, of your team. And I think it helps. Like I, you know, what I try to do, you try to, you try to have numbers back it up. You try to have, you know, sources uh, outside. A lot of times, like sometimes I'll let a source do the dirty work for me. And, you know, <laughs> if it's another a scout or GM and, and that's where the criticism is coming from. But I just think if you're fair to people, these guys, you know, people are they're pretty realistic. They understand that there's going to be some criticism of, their, of, you know, especially when things are going sideways, but you just can't take cheap shots. That's, that's yeah. why I'm out. Yeah, that's fair. That's a uh, wise advice. Um, all right, Craig, thanks for taking the time to chat, man. It's, uh, I'm glad we finally got to do this after taking such a long break. Yeah, I got to get back up the uh, standings and and uh, appearances. Yeah, you've, forward to you've fallen way behind. Chris Johnson Chris, is now cold. <laughs> yeah, Chris Johnson's killing you here. He's killing you with the beard game, and he's killing you with the uh, PDO cast uh, appearances. Yeah, his, his beard game is, is stronger than mine. But who else? Who's in the top three? What's the leaderboard look like right now? I, I feel like uh, Mike Johnson's pretty high. I feel like you're also going to have a tough oh. time beating him. Although he also doesn't have a got beard, it. so you got him there. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. Well. Well, we'll have to just do. Let's. We'll have to go on a bender like every other week for until I catch at least my chance. It's pl- my pl- my pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to it. Let's uh, <laughs> let's check back in closer to the trade deadline and kind of uh, figure out where everyone's at. Cool. Thanks, Dimitri. Okay, talk to you, man. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dimitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloudcom slash Cast. Mm-hmm.